Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Total Celebrity Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TotalTutor, and also NeilHaley.com, and I'm excited to welcome the program, Boris Kojo of T- CBS's TV's Code Black. Boris, thanks for calling. How are you? Good morning, Neil. How are you? Happy New Year again. We just talked about it. Yeah, we talked about Happy New Year, and, and Boris, is not that true? Every year we have our goals, aspirations, that we're going to conquer the world, aren't we? You know what? I think I think that people sort of they put too much on their plate in the beginning of the year, and it creates pressure. And uh, I I decided not to do that anymore. So what I like to call those resolutions now are my 2017 intentions. And uh, you know, baby steps is what I'm saying. You know, I want to. One of the first things that I want to try to do is be more present in my family's and my friends' lives, um, because we all move around at the light, the, the speed of light. And sometimes we forget to appreciate and cherish the moments and, and 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 look around and smell the roses, however you want to call it. And I'm going to try to do that this year. And that's great because, again, in your business, as my business as an entrepreneur, we constantly get caught up in just things that the average everyday worker doesn't get caught up on. And we forget, we forget at times and we get so caught up in ourselves that we have to have that time during the holidays to kind of reflect and say, we really got to spend more time and we got to make it a point to do it. Absolutely. Because, you know, that's where we draw inspiration from. That's where we draw our strength and our power from, uh, from our loved ones. And when we do that, it has a, an amazing impact on everything else we do. So everything else sort of falls into play. For me, you're talking about entrepreneurship. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, exactly specifically what you're into, but I know for sure that when you are at your best mentally, physically, and spiritually, uh, those those objectives and those goals that you have in those business areas work much better than, than if you're stressed out. And I hear that most entrepreneurs at times are. And no, I'm in this growth phase, Boris, and uh, a lot of exciting things, and it just it, and it's always a, a change. But you have to, and I always talk to my wife about, we need to have flow. We need to have positivity because it's so important when you work for yourself that you do that. And when you audition, Boris, you can't go in like you're ticked off because of what happened in family life 20 minutes before. You have to kind of put on that new face, and sometimes people can see it, right? Like, oh, man, he doesn't want to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, so let's talk yeah, about your character in Code Black. Uh, tell us about it. Again, I think it's a great show for sure because of the ER, a place that me and you never want to go to, yeah. right, Boris? Right? And I've, I had a serious ER Pretty incident. Much. It's not a fun thing. I got almost my toe lacerated mm-hmm. off, and I was at, and went to an ER. It's, so that's what this show kind of brings to the table is what happens when the most – biggest emergencies happen and how the medical staff handles it, right? Well, you know, it's called Code Black, and Code Black means when the, the incoming emergencies outweigh the resources. It pretty much um, uh, uh, puts it on the nose. And, and on average, in this country, hospitals have five Code Blacks a year. Oh, my gosh. Uh, our show is based on yeah, our show is based on Los Angeles County, which is the busiest hospital of, of, the, of the country. And we have over 300 cold blacks a year. So every single day, there's mayhem, there's craziness, there's stress level 5,000. And I play Dr. Campbell, who is the head of surgery and the head of the ER. So I'm the boss of all bosses. I, I boss everybody around. I'm the guy who wants everybody to be efficient and to be you know, saving, saving lives and be maximizing their own potential. So I can be a hard uh, citizen to deal with. Um, and then Marsha Gay Harden uh, plays my the yin to my yang. She plays the, the moral fiber of the show. She's my counterpart who sort of uh, uh, 
heads the, 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 the residents in the ER. And there's never uh, a moment to really breathe in the show. And that's what makes it so <laughs> yeah. great for me. The writing is exceptional. And we have, you know, all of our extras are real ER nurses and medical staff. So they really? know what they're doing. Oh. And, um, yeah, and the pacing is crazy. And I think it's the best show since, since ER in terms of medical shows. Wow. And, and I think when you talk about the, the code black where this is it every the the when this happens all hands are on deck right that's pretty much what happens when a code black happens right Boris? absolutely all hands have to be on deck because we have to deal with all the craziness that comes to the door um so these all these all these cases are just uh extraordinarily difficult to deal with uh um in this episode we have a helicopter crash that causes mayhem um so in, in this year has been incredible because all the cases that we've dealt with have been um, sort of rooted in, in in situations that have been seen in the news in the last year. So all this stuff that's going down is really authentic and it's, and it's addressed in a way that is uh, we we don't we don't beat around the bush. You know, we go right to it. You see everything. We do boot camps actually as actors where we have to learn how to perform these surgeries. Uh, so when we're on camera, we we look like we know what we're doing. And that's what makes it so much fun. You know, um, I got a little personal story. My my dad was a doctor. Oh, when wow. I first got the show, he, he gave me two pieces of advice. He said, look, your heart rate should never be over 50, which means you are the pilot of the plane. Uh, you always have to be under control. Uh, you can never be stressed. And number two is anytime you enter a room, you have to be the answer. Um, and I sort of remembered those things when he passed, unfortunately, six months ago. Oh, I'm uh, sorry to hear that. But I hmm. found a way to, to, to honor him when I go to work, and, and you know, I'm, I'm playing Dr. Campbell, but I'm really also playing Dr. Koja, <laughs> which is kind of fun to sort of yeah. keep his memory alive when I go to work. So, Boris, did you ever want to be a doctor growing up? Yeah, actually, I was in pre-med. Um, you know, both my parents are, so I naturally gravitated towards the field, and I and I was a pre-med. But then my father, believe it or not, uh, uh, dissuaded me from doing it. He said, "Look, when you're a doctor, you you're dedicating your life to public service, which is a great thing." But he knew me. He knows I have so many different interests. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I love to travel. I, I I produce documentaries. I do so many different things. Mm-hmm. And, and he knew that those dreams could never come to pass if I was to dedicate myself to being a doctor. So he talked me out of it. Wow. Okay. Uh, interesting. Because you're right. Yeah. So, so you retire pretty much. Yeah. You can't do those things and your creativity and the things that drive you every day. And, and when we talk about entrepreneurship, we talked about this at the beginning. It's, it's, we're a different animal. We're a different animal, Boris. We have this idea when we wake up, oh, yeah. we have a thought, 50 different projects in our head we want to try to accomplish. And then it just Oh, depends. my gosh. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I have behind me, I'm sitting in my office, I have a huge, I have a, I have a huge visual visual board behind me. Oh, and wow. all of my projects are uh, splattered across the wall. And every time I walk in here, I get this, this search of, of energy. And, and I'll, you know, like I said, every day you want to advance one of your projects one or two steps. And uh, if you're a doctor, there's no way you can you can engage in all these different things. It's the all hands on deck thing where you're just your job is service and that that's a, a, the primary focus and people are rewarded with decent pay. And but ultimately they do sacrifice a lot of other things in their lives as doctors. And that's what it shows in the show. The stress, right, Boris, when you go through a code black, it really changes the entire people on deck, the feeling, the tragedies that happen, and the difficulties, they, they really weigh on a lot of the staff, does, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it sort of, life culminates at Code Black. It, it culminates in the ER, in the OR, when, when, when lives are, you know, ended and, and lives are, are, are saved and, tragedies occur and families come together and, and families are ripped apart and and those moments are are they have to be managed um, and we have to manage them uh, sometimes we have to remove ourselves you know emotionally to be able to handle those moments and and you can see all of that on the screen you know because we all 
regular people, and and sometimes we break down, and and and, and you can see that as well, and and that's what makes pro black so special because no pull, no punches are pulled. You know, it's all right to the gut, and it's uh, real and it's authentic. And Michael Feisman has done has done an incredible job to make sure the writing is incredible. And um, it, I'm really, really uh, blessed to be a part of it. It's, it's an amazing show. All right. Best place we can find information on you. Everyone needs to tune in on January 4th as Code Black uh, comes back. And the best place we can find information on you, Boris, where can we go? I go to Instagram or Twitter, uh, at Boris Kojo. And um, we have a website for our foundation, the Sophie's Voice um, Foundation, sophiesvoice.net, to find out about all of our outreach programs and and, um, and uh, our advocacy for fortification uh, in terms of folic acid and, and spina bifida, um, go to, uh, to sophiesvoice.net. All right. Well, Boris, thanks for calling. Appreciate it. And uh, best of luck in the season. And great to chat with an entrepreneur and understand, And you understand my feeling. And uh, great resolutions. Absolutely. Let's see if we can live those resolutions this year, Boris, okay? That's right. Good luck. All right. right, Take take care. All right. See you, Bob. You listen to Total Celebrity Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Total Celebrity Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com, and I'm excited to welcome the program, former MLB star Nelson Figueroa. Uh, Nelson, thanks for calling, and uh, I'm excited to learn a bit about your story and the great work you're doing with your charity. But, Nelson, thanks for calling. No, thank you very much, Neil, and the tremendous opportunity to get a chance to speak with you today. Absolutely, Nelson. Let's talk about, you know, when we talk about baseball, when we talk about getting to become a major leaguer, what do you feel was your greatest moment as a as a, as a a player in Major League Baseball? Well, I mean, uh, everyone will probably point out the uh, complete game shutout, the first one ever at City Field for the Mets back in 2009. Um, you know, that's on the field kind of thing. But I think for me, it was, I wound up having surgery after my second year with the pirates in 2004. And it was a long, hard road to get back, you know, including independent ball and playing in Taiwan and Mexico. And it took uh, a season of pitching 285 innings all over the world to get an opportunity to be signed back and with the Mets in 2008 got a chance to go to spring training and almost made the team. And then Pedro winds up, uh, tearing his groin second game of the season. And I was back in the big leagues after that long uh, winding road. And just to get back, it was a tremendous accomplishment and, and something that, you know, I think is my proudest moment. And and you never knew if you were going to ever going to make it back right after that injury in Pittsburgh, you thought maybe this is it for me. And then especially having to go that long road back to the majors, which was challenging for someone who's pitched for so many years. Before that, yeah. yeah, no, without a doubt, it was uh, one of those things where you know you get a phone call. I actually got a phone call from the GM of the Pirates the day of my surgery as I'm walking to the uh, doctor's office, and uh, you know he said this is a big moment in your career, and you know I, you always hear the numbers and the statistics: seventy-five percent come back either the same or better than ever before, and twenty-five percent never make it back. And so after I had the surgery, five months passed, and I wasn't feeling like things were progressing rather quickly and I was very worried um, and wound up missing a full season where uh, it was supposed to be a six to nine month rehab process and uh, the Pirates had released me the day of my surgery so here I was without an organization without a team and just trying to get back to the routine of able to throw a ball at a high level and then pitch and get hitters out trying to do that all on your own Yeah, trying to do that all on your own and and prove that you can do it proved to be very difficult. You know, you had to try and call all your favors in with all the scouts you ever knew. You know, I was in Arizona, and I would, you know, go down and throw for any team that wanted to see me throw and went to open tryouts, and uh, it was was both humbling at the same time and made it so much uh, more worthwhile when I finally got back. And and that's the thing. You had to do it on your own. And Nelson, if you wouldn't have had that injury, were you close to finishing up your career in baseball at that point when you were with the Pirates, or did you have aspirations of a lot more years? Oh, I, I felt like I was finally getting into a groove. And, and you know, you when you're a, a guy who, you know, you're a quote-unquote star coming up through high school and college, and you you stand out, and then you get drafted. And then all of a sudden you're into this, 
you know, this melting pot of players from all over the country and the best of the best, and you kind of that pyramid starts shrinking as you get higher up. And so then you finally make it to the major leagues, and making it to the major leagues is an accomplishment all on its own. Staying in the major leagues is totally different animal. I mean, it, it's it's something that, especially someone like myself, who I wasn't a guy who threw 100 miles an hour. I wasn't a guy who had the nastiest stuff in the world. But I was. I felt like I was a very complete pitcher. I was a very polished pitcher for, especially my younger years. I was able to throw five pitches for strikes. I could start. I could relieve. I could pitch from the stretch. I could slide step. I could handle the bat a little bit. So I could do a little bit of everything. And I felt like I could fill a multitude of roles for a team. Right. But back then, that wasn't really appreciated the way it is now, where now they, they see the value in having a guy that can fill two, three roles. Back, you know, uh, back then they were looking for a guy that, you know, was the hard thrower, the guy who right. a ton of strikeouts and, and, you know, lights up the radar gun. That was more important, it seems. So for me, it was uh, just really – I had – just kind of hit my stride where I found my role of being, you know, that long man, that swing man kind of guy that can get the ball to the eighth and ninth inning guys. I can eat up multiple innings. I can, you know, save the bullpen. Exactly. Exactly. So for me, I, I felt like I was hitting my stride, and then all of a sudden I had this injury. And oh, yeah. it, it, it kind of put everything in perspective of how lucky I was to just have the two years, two and a half years that I got before the injury, and then just to get back, realizing that, hey, you know what? The, the second chance that I'm getting, I got to make the most of it. And I felt like I did that. I had zero regrets. I feel like I made the most of them each and every opportunity that was given to me. But um, I definitely look at it now differently as an analyst, looking at these kids. Some, some of them, you know, they have one good year in a ball and the next year you see them in the big leagues, getting an opportunity to prove they can do it at the big league level. So moving up the ladder and then getting the opportunity to go back to the Mets must've been amazing for you. And especially you said the complete game that day to feel that all of your hard work finally paid off in that opportunity. And when you were with the Mets, they were starting to become a a player again in the bait in baseball. Right. Especially when you came back. Oh, yeah. No, in 2008 and 2009, they had, you know, put together a tremendous team of all stars. And, you know, it was hard to. For seeing that team not able to gel completely, and, and there were so many injuries in 2008 and 9, especially in 2009. You know, we had the collapse in 2008, the way we ended, and uh, shut down Shea Stadium. That was disappointing, of course, for a Brooklyn kid who grew up loving the Mets. Um, but for me, it was, you know, I got drafted by the Mets. That could have been it right there. I was, you know, fulfilling a lifelong dream of being a deemed a professional by the New York Mets. That right there I would have been happy with. But I got to put on the New York Mets uniform 13 years after I got drafted by the New York Mets and uh, starting in Shea Stadium where I grew up, you know, going to watch guys like Gooden and Doc and Daryl and have an opportunity to pitch on that same mound just was a dream come true in itself. I won my first game and my family and friends were there. Wow. You know, I had about 120 people come out to support me and, and just the friends that the friends and family that have been along with me through the journey to, to let them, you know, kind of live it out through me in that one moment. I think that's the one that people remember the most is that first game in 2008 against the Brewers. Now, right from there, life after baseball, what made you want to become an analyst? Was this something that you were studying throughout the time where you're like, I, I know I, I'm, I'm, you're very well-spoken and you, you're, you, you're, you do well in your job. Did you say to yourself, this is it. I'm learning and studying the game. This is I want to definitely do uh, be involved in baseball in some way like this compared to some are already preparing. Hey, I'm going to be a coach. Hey, I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to go and uh, be in, in business. Did you have the idea that you wanted to be a baseball analyst when you were playing? Well, you know, actually in 2008, um, right after we finished uh, at, at Shea Stadium, I got a phone call from Kirk Gowdy Jr. over at SNY, and he had me come in just for an interview, kind of wanted to touch base with me, and, you know, he was asking, well, what are your plans for next year? And I was like, well, I'm hoping to make the team again and, you know, keep pitching. So for me, it was uh, a little bit of an introduction. They felt that I handled myself well in front of a microphone, in front of the cameras. I was well-spoken. Mm-hmm. I'm bilingual. I went to Brandeis University, so I had a good head on my shoulders. Yes. And I was always having to be a guy who, you know, I was very, a uh, very cerebral pitcher. I had to study the game. I had to 
find the weaknesses in the hitters, tend to look for tendencies way before people started looking at those analytics. I, I did that kind of homework because it helped me to have a better idea of how to attack hitters. Again, I didn't have plus stuff, but I had the ability to change speeds, change eye levels, and move the ball around and you know throw strikes to both sides of the plate. So as I was kind of winding down and started looking at you know what was next, coaching, of course, came to mind. Um, but for me, it was kind of hard because I thought of – you know, when I was first uh, starting out and you had coaches who you really didn't know, you didn't know their names. It wasn't a well-named, right. you know, big-name coach. They didn't have Google back then. You know, now with Google, yeah. you get a kid to look up exactly what you did. And I get the first kid that says, oh, wow, you're a 30th rounder. You signed for, you know, $2,500. What do you know? You know, what have you ever done? Uh, that, to me, was going to be a hard pill to swallow right away, especially yes. in this day and age of kids getting a million dollars to sign. Um, so I, I said, I don't know if I could just jump right into that. I said, I think I need to kind of see where the uh, analyst side of, of the game could take me because it's kind of like doing a, an interview for, you know, all 30 teams while I'm out there on the air, showing them my baseball knowledge, showing my experience, showing my expertise and how I break down different players, different situations. And, and really, I think I'm able to do it from a different perspective. I don't, I'm, don't have the Hall of Fame pedigree that some of these guys get. You know, they get instant work when you have Hall of Fame credentials. But for someone like myself, you know, I've been released. I've been sent down. I've been, you know, let go. A lot of right. analysts can't talk to that. They can't speak to that. So when Matt Harvey was struggling last year, oh, it was probably my heyday. I said, I know exactly what he's going through. I know what it's like to get booed off the mound. I right. know like that feeling. And so I, I said to, um, to uh, you know, even to Matt to, uh, to himself, I said, listen, I, I know what you're going through. I, I can vouch for you. I, I've been there before. And so some of the lesser players would come up to me and say, it's amazing that we now have a voice. And to me, that I take great responsibility in that because you know it's not always about the superstars that make the play, that make the uh, team special. There's always those role players. There's those guys that you maybe the lesser knowns that fulfill a role so that those stars can shine, and you never really hear about how important they are to a team. And I think over my last two years at SNY, people are starting to realize that you need more than just a few big names in a lineup. It takes a whole team to get to the promised land. And see, and I think, Nelson, that's what you're able to bring to the, the, the table, and you understand the game, but you also can break it down for people. And I think that's important. And you're also, you still carry the banner of a Major League Baseball player that wasn't the biggest star, but that doesn't matter because a lot of the greatest analysts in baseball, if you look at history, weren't like Hall of Famers. You know what I mean, right. Nelson? They were people that, you know, that every day. And do you see yourself continuing with the New York Mets or would you like to do national stuff at one point in time, Nelson? So I think that's the goal of any analyst is to do national coverage. But, I mean, I, I couldn't ask for more. Um, I'm in the media mecca of the world. Uh, so it's not as if I'm starting out my career in, you know, Montana. And right, it's, right. No, one, no one's ever getting to see me. So I, I think this is a tremendous opportunity to learn and grow. Um, I think I've really grown in leaps and bounds from year one to year two and i plan on continuing in year three we're moving to a new location down at the uh in the world trade center area and uh, we have a new studio and so we're going to be uh showcasing new technologies um new things that we can do and try and really bring different perspectives and different insights to the the viewer that you know more so than ever before more than just your typical you know you you hear the analyst cliches right. that you know of, you know this guy is a ball player and this guy is a professional hitter and things like that we're going to be able to go inside the numbers and show you what the numbers mean and and I'm excited about the opportunity to hopefully do something a little different and to uh continue to uh, help S and Y grow to uh, record uh, record numbers, and so that so basically, do you do the radio side or just the television side, Nelson? Uh, I do the television side. So I'm at I'm, I'm literally I do the pre and post game. Um, we have two pre games. We have one called First Pitch, and then we have the actual pre game show. So it's a half hour show, and then another half hour show. Then the game goes on. We toss it over to Garrett Keith and Ron. They do the coverage during the game, and then after the game, tune into SNY or stay tuned into SNY, and then you can see my post game tirades or <laughs> hey, uh, opportunity I, to tell you exactly what what went wrong no. or what went right, and you know what to look forward to tomorrow. 
I, I'm telling you, ESPN's going to be calling you soon, Nelson. Trust me. You, you just definitely seem like you'd be a very interesting person to break down the games. I don't, being a Pittsburgh guy, as we talked about, and we'll get right to the charity right after that, is you talked about your amazing time in Pittsburgh. And I wanted to bring that up just because of our flagship station in Pittsburgh. But uh, I really believe I see big things for you, especially in this end because of how you carry yourself and your knowledge of baseball, but also how you could just take on a role of interviewing people as a journalist anywhere. So uh, kudos to you on that. that. But tell us about your time in Pittsburgh because I think I'd love our our, our listeners and viewers to know that because we also do have a TV show that we'll put this on as well with a slideshow. But to tell about your experience in Pittsburgh. For our oh, Pittsburgh, yeah, yeah. yeah, Pittsburgh for me was, was an incredible time. It was 2003 and 2004. I was with you know alongside Jack Wilson, uh, uh, Jason Bay, wow, Jason yeah. Kendall, uh, all those guys. And I remember uh, just I loved the neighborhood feel of the ballpark. I loved oh, yes. Pittsburgh. I loved when you would come out of the tunnel, you know, late at night. You, we would come in from a flight and we'd come through the tunnel, and then all of a sudden you get into the city and you see it all lit up like that. That, to me, was one of like the greatest uh, visuals that you could have uh, uh, playing in the major leagues is coming through that tunnel and seeing the city of Pittsburgh, seeing the three stadiums lined up right there on, on the river, the, the fact that the whole city is black and gold for each of their teams. Yes. I think that's a tremendous idea because everybody feels like they're part of every season wearing the black and gold. Um, that that ballpark itself, the way it's kind of just dropped down street level and you just walk out of the back. I used to walk out of the left field gate about two blocks down and I had a condo right on the river. Um, and that's what I did. I didn't even have a car. I just walked back and forth <laughs> from the ballpark to my place. And uh, it, it was just the, a neighborhood feel of like, it was a dream come true for somebody that you play in the big leagues and you, you know, everybody always talks, Oh, wow. It must be great to live in a mansion and a, you know, and a penthouse and everything else. Right. For me, it was like, wow, I get to walk to the ballpark and go to work every day. I mean, that's, that's as good as it gets. I don't have to worry about parking. I don't have to worry about anything else. I just get to go there and mingle with the fans on the way and, you know, shake hands and, uh, you know, get a chance to sign some autographs for kids and to, to play in Pittsburgh. The, the fans, there were tremendous. Um, you know, I, I, I always remember that they gave away uh, Charlie Brown bobblehead for the lovable losers. You know, <laughs> eleven straight years, eleven straight years of finishing under five hundred, and it didn't matter to those fans. They were supporting their team, and they were they were awesome uh, to me and, and and to my family. And I uh, was very appreciative of the time in Pittsburgh. All right, and I don't know if you kept on being a uh, being a New Yorker if you're into the Steelers, but I'm sure you try. They're a team to think about cheering for if it's not for your New York teams, probably in football. Right? <laughs> no, of course, and that's one of the things that I loved. I was in so many teams that I would always kind of take on that team as my favorite team in that off season. But you know, the Steelers are hard to root against. I mean, they're such a tremendous organization, and just the way they play the game is so exciting. I love um, having a chance to to watch those games and and to know that we were that close or across the street almost from them. And uh, I always wanted to go to a Steelers game. So that's still on my bucket list. <laughs> okay, Nelson. I think we could pull some strings on that. Okay, let's go now go into the Nelson Figueroa Annual Charity Bowl. Tell us about your charity and tell, tell us about the event, which will be January 16th from 6 p.m. Yes. To, to 9 p.m. Eastern in New York. Go ahead. Yes, it's going to be taking place at uh, Lucky Strike Bowling Alley in Manhattan, um, it was an opportunity. I, when I was playing with the Mets in 2009, I met a family, uh, the Finkelsteins, and their daughter Perry. And she was in a wheelchair, and she came over, gave me a good luck bracelet, and asked if I could give David Wright another, one of the other bracelets. And everybody wants to give something to David Wright. I was yeah, very yeah. happy that they gave me they gave me a little something, and I said, you know what, I'm going to wear it. I put it on that day, and I decided to wear it out the rest of the season. Uh, took it over to David Wright and gave it to him. He wore it for the day, and um, I remember talking with him a little bit and getting to know a little bit about you know Perry's condition. She has muscular dystrophy, and she was born that way. But she was always with a smile on her face and a huge Mets fan, and you know just she had this vibrance about her. And her brother, fast forward, you know, uh, here we were last year in in 2016, and her brother gets in contact with me through Facebook, uh, my SNY page. And sends me a picture of uh, that day when we all took a picture together yeah. and told me, hey, check out this video. I saw Perry. Uh, here we are. You know, this is seven years later. She had 
walked a thousand steps on her under her own power with a special chair. She had walked uh, a thousand steps to help raise money for High Lifeline and Team Lifeline to uh, help kids that are with disabilities get a chance to go to what's called Camp uh, Simcha and they get a chance to. Uh, experience things that they normally would never get a chance to experience. So it's a way of funding them. They've raised so much money for this uh, beautiful cause, and Perry herself, you know, takes such great pride in it. So she went from walking a thousand steps last year. She put it out this year. She wants to walk a full mile. And I decided if she's going to walk a full mile, then I'm going to have to see if I can do something with that. And so here I am. I'm signed up for a half marathon in Miami on the 29th of January. Okay. Myself having a hip replacement, um, I wasn't going to be able to run it, so I'm going to walk the half marathon and walk that last mile with alongside Perry and the rest of Team Lifeline and Team Perry. Um, the whole idea, like I said, is to raise money to give these kids an opportunity for uh, to go to camp and experience things they normally would not get to experience. Um, they just, you know, it, it's a way to give back to these kids uh, with some with terminal illnesses, some again in situations uh, with disabilities that we can help make their lives a little bit better and at least put some smiles on their faces and experience and memories for a lifetime. So I decided to. Try and put this thing together, um, and the response has been incredible. Uh, we've contacted uh, different organizations, teams, uh, movie producers, oh, wow. uh, politicians. Yeah. So what we're doing is this an, uh, an auction website called Charity Buzz. You go to charitybuzz.com, and on there you will see for uh, under Nelson Figueroa, um, we have over 86 items that have been donated in less than two weeks. Um, and when I tell you it's the most eclectic mix of items I've ever seen, it's phenomenal. So every walk of life, if you're looking for something different, something uh, interesting to do, again, you go out and, and bid and have an opportunity to do these things. I mean, you have an opportunity, you know, David Wright, uh, chance to meet David Wright, go watch batting practice and a ball game. David Wright will come over, sign an autograph, take a picture with you after batting practice. You guys come watch a Met game. Uh, also get to sign baseball for me, of course, because it's a Met thing. Um, you have an opportunity to do things like, let me see, we have uh, lunch with legendary ba basketball reporter Peter Vesey. Uh, you want to go and, and meet a comedian, get uh, lunch with uh, Alex Mandel. You want an opportunity to go, there's a father and son Islander game on Tuesday, January 24th. You get a Zamboni ride, Dennis Potvin autographed puck, and an Islander swag bag, and they'll take care of you, and it's another oh opportunity. Oh, my, wow. Uh, you have an opportunity. The Knicks were outstanding with us as well. We have four tickets to a Knicks game, a Comrello Anthony signed jersey, and here's the part that, again, it's a, not just getting merchandise, but here's part of the experience. I'm going to go to the game. Hooters has donated a $300 gift card for happy hour, so we can have happy hour and wings before the game. You get a Carmelo signed jersey. You get four tickets to the game, and we get to watch the game together and, and a chance to hang out and, again, talk baseball, great. Watch basketball, even better. Uh, the Flyers have... Um, uh, game for two, Captain Claude Giroux's suite, and received two side pucks. Um, every I'm talking about the Giants have donated two tickets to a 2017 game in a Jason Pierre-Paul autographed jersey. So uh, the, the Marvel Comics, um, I, I actually just got in contact with them, and I was a huge Marvel fan growing up. Yes. You get a chance to go to uh, the friends and family screening of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and, Mar and a Marvel autograph package of different comic books and paraphernalia. Um, so literally, there's so many different things, a chance to meet the different, um, let's see, we have a, a few different attorneys. We have wow. uh, okay. We have a different, a couple of different bowling experiences. You get to, uh, the Skype sessions where you can talk with guys like Seth Gold from Hardcore Pawn. Um, you can do a 30-minute Skype session. You have... Uh, let me see. There's actually, ooh, there was one. I remember this. There was a really cool one here with. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Let me see. Ah, lunch with the Reddit co-creator and CEO Steve Huffman. Um, you got a 45-minute consultation with fashion guru Kelly Catrone. Oh my! Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, and this literally happened. I was like, I want to do something for these kids. I want to be able to to say that you know we did everything we could besides me walking. I wanted to you know put together an event where these kids are also going to come out and bowl with us. And so we have a bowling event um, that I'll get back to that was, that's happening at Lucky Strike. And so the bowling event is going to – it's on my Twitter page. So that's at FIGSNY, F-I-G-S-N-Y. 
Um, it's pinned up there. You take a look. It's a $40 donation. You come in. It's uh, unlimited bowling for three hours. Uh, there's food there. There's going to be door prizes. You get two raffle tickets thrown in with the 40 bucks, the $40 donation. Um, and it's just an, and the guest list keeps getting bigger and bigger. We have Ken Dashow from Q104. He's one of the rock DJs here in New York. Uh, you have myself. We have a couple actors from uh, Blue Bloods that are coming out. Um, I'm in talks with Jose Reyes right now, trying to get okay. him to come out. And he's in the Dominican Republic right now, so we're still talking because he's a good friend of mine. I'm trying to get him to come out and bowl because I want to whoop his butt real quick. <laughs> but uh, it, it's going to be a very fun night. Again, the guest list continues to grow. There's going to be different guys from SNY, uh, uh, you know, Duquette. Uh, uh, is, is one of our analysts, Jim Duquette. He's going to be there as well. So he's also donated a lunch with him. You want to get inside the mind of a you know, big league GM. You want to know what it takes to do the front office side of things in baseball. He's a guy that, hey, you can pick his brain for 30 minutes while having some lunch and getting a chance to meet him. Uh, tour of SNY Studios is involved in this package as well. So we have a little bit of both, a little bit of everything. And, and again, a great opportunity to go out and bowl and have some fun with some fans and um, maybe uh, some celebrities that will be there in and out and get a chance to uh, have a good time and for a great cause. Nelson, it sounds fantastic. So just to kind of summarize, we have the event, the bowling event on the 16th, but also for our national, international audience, we yes. can get involved in the auction. How long does that auction take place? The, that au- the, this yeah. auction is going to take place. It's going online. I believe it's as of tonight. It'll be online at charitybuzz.com, and it w- that will go on up until I'm going to have it pushed through the uh, actual marathon. So as I'll be walking on the 29th, uh, hopefully people will still have a chance to bid. And so this gives you about a month after the holidays. Something great, uh, like I said, great experiences, you know, one-of-a-kind experiences. That's, there's, uh, for instance, I'm from Arizona. I play with the D-backs. The D-backs have donated four tickets to a game of your choice. Oh, you get to wow. be batting practice, sit behind home plate, and a Paul Goldschmidt signed baseball. I mean, again, we tried to cover the gamut. You have lunch with the Karate Kid creator, Mark uh, Robert Mark came in in Sonoma, California. So we have the East Coast, the West Coast. There's a four-ticket package to the uh, Wheel of Fortune out in <laughs> California, wow. Pat and Vanna. So there's there's something for everybody in this auction, and we wanted to make sure that we got an opportunity to do that. So sports isn't your thing. Don't worry. We got you covered in here. Uh, and, and, again, it's uh, charitybuzz.com, and you can also look at the links on my Twitter handle, at FigSNY, and my Facebook page, FigSNY. Uh, and so you, you have a, a tremendous opportunity to do things that, uh, you know, most people will not. What people are paying just for two tickets to go, you know, you put up that kind of, uh, of a bid on this website and you're going to have an experience package involved with it as well. Well, Nelson, fantastic. Best of luck with the event. But I, I'm interested in this whole online. If we want to create any more buzz before the 29th, you're help, happy to. I'm happy to have you come back on the show again to chat, especially just at, after this event's over. Let us know. Maybe you can give us an update on how the event went and stuff like that, and that could help Absolutely. increase leading up to the 29th. More talk about the foundation, whatever stuff. I really enjoyed talking with you, and uh, best of luck. You're trying to get everything done before you head out to spring training, right? And then you'll <laughs> exactly. be able to, you'll, Thank you so much. Yeah, you'll be beating the cold then, right? Then, when you get yeah, to Florida. Yeah, that's, that's always the plan, is to get to spring training when the snow starts dropping up here, right? Yeah, sounds good. All right, well, good talking, Nelson. Right, when I'm in New York, we got to connect sometime, all right? Sound good? Definitely. Thank you, Neil. All right, Nelson, take care. See ya. Okay, bye-bye. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. You're listening to Total Celebrities Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. So I'm excited to welcome the program Aaron Hayes of the CBS comedy Kevin Can't Wait. And it's on 8 p.m. Eastern on Mondays. Aaron, thanks for calling. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm having a having a lazy morning over here in my house, uh, thinking about taking the Christmas tree, but sad to do it. Taking it down, I mean. Taking it. Yes, I yes. Taking it. <laughs> well, you know, you take it somewhere. We'll take it down about January seventh. That's my birthday, Aaron, and that's when I. Uh, and again, we're Catholic, but again, uh, or, um, Orthodox Christmas is January seventh. So we take the Christmas season. It ends January seventh for us. That's when the tree goes down. Oh, or January. That sounds. Yeah. That sounds much nicer because it's such a beautiful. Gl- like after you take it down, it's like. I mean, yes, things are more clean because there's less needles, but, like, I will wait until that thing is just a, 
undeniable fire hazard. Uh, I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, and you see these stories of these uh, trees poof, and oh my gosh, they they um they they catch on fire. So you know it is what it is. Yeah. Now, Aaron, when you first heard about this opportunity. Uh, with uh, Kevin Can Wade. Tell us a little bit about that story of the audition and stuff for this part. Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, last year in pilot season, when it came my way, at first I was like, whoa, this is a show. You know, I live in Los Angeles. My family is here, and this is a show that shoots in New York. So I kind of pushed it away a little bit, and then it came back my way. I think that, you know, they had auditioned a bunch of people and hadn't found the right person they felt for the role. Um, so they came back around my way and the script was a little bit different and it was a little bit more, uh, you know, I don't know. It was just a different, like it was like a month later and I'm like, you know, I should just get, they want, they wanted to fly me out to New York to try it. And I was like, why would I be shutting myself down from an opportunity? So I flew out there and met with Kevin and the producers, and it really was like the minute I walked in the room, it was just such a nice rapport that we all had together, and um, I went from being very skeptical to just having the greatest time, you know, just kind of could immediately see that this would be a fun working environment, and walked out of the room like with all, you know, fingers and toes crossed, really wanting the job, Um, so they... I think won me over as much in that room as uh, as I did them. So it was very pleased and happy when it all came to pass. And it sounds like for you, this is a different type of comedy for you, Aaron. Uh, in your background, yeah, you know, I've done so much. I've done a bunch of comedy. I have done a lot of sitcom work, um, but it's just nothing has been this high profile, uh, or with somebody like with this much clout as Kevin James that you get more attention for it. But then, yeah, the last, like, seven years, I've been jumping around more on, um, you know, shows like New Girl or Parks and Rec and Children's Hospital, which is a much more, uh, it's a much different kind of comedy. It's it's not, we're, we're, like, now back in, like, the traditional family sitcom right. of Cheers and, you know, um, the, the Cosby Show, like like all these ones that are just you sit down and you watch with your family. Where I have not been living in that world. I, I think it's very refreshing <laughs> for my own kids because they can like they're like we can watch the show. We could. They still haven't seen much of Children's Hospital, like bits here and there. But I'm like, that's not appropriate, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was reading your bio. I said, Aaron, this is definitely a different comedy. I'm happy that we're go- your guys are going yes. after this because I believe that that we need to have the entire family to watch shows. Like I love some of these shows, but I have to put my kids all to bed when my wife and I try to catch up on the uh, on DVR. And this, this show, I have watched it, especially when I knew I was going to have you on. Uh, and I enjoy it because I love Kevin James. Oh, and I think you. he's such, yeah. he, he's, he's just a comedic genius. And the fact he's of the matter got is that. such a strong instinct. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Such, and, and and the storyline of the fact that he's a retired police officer stuck at home, and we, as guys, we all know what. How do we survive when we're stuck at home? Like I, I'm an entrepreneur, Aaron, and I was just literally just going crazy. Like I cannot wait to when they're all back to school. My wife's back to school, which is tomorrow, and I'm like, I can't wait because yeah. I have freedom again. This is what Kevin yeah, kind of his skin is crawling, being stuck at home all the time, right? Instead of at work. Yeah, I think it's, well, it's that, I, it's that phenomenon. I, you know, living out in, like, Los Angeles, where it's, um, and being an actor, like, my friends vary wildly in terms of creative types, office types, everything like this, but um, it's only really through my kids' school that I, that I am more, like, know some, like, police officers or um, uh, people who were doing that. So I had no idea that you could retire. You could, if you enter the force at 20, you're retired at 40. Like there's a lot of yeah. life left to live after that. And what I think that is the interesting thing about our show is like really what what's the next step? Like what are you doing with the rest of your possibly long, hopefully, life, you know? Um, but I think that's the interesting thing of like you can't, I guess you could stop working completely, but that's kind of boring. So, you know, a lot of these guys do go on to become security guards here or there, pick up odd jobs or, 
you know, drivers or um, everything. And so there's endless, uh, there's endless story for us to cover, which has been fun. And, and, and I agree. And you think about it, Aaron, the fact is that uh, they're itching to still be around. And then, you know, police officers at one point didn't need the education system that they need today. So then it's harder for them to get another job, like go and work in some other professional field. So you're right. They pick up odd jobs yeah. or, they're, or they're stuck at home in specific ways. And I, and I love also the fact that he stays with his friends. Anytime he can escape, escape for some man time, it's funny. I watched the episode when he went and played football and you were like, oh, please don't do that. And that was just hilarious. That was so funny. I do that because I think we all do that with our spouses. We're like, really? You're really going to, you know, this never ends well. Like my husband will be like, no, I'm just going to take the truck over and move that pile of wood. And I'm like, really? All right. So should I just get the heating pad ready now? Uh, do you want to maybe get somebody to help you? Because <laughs> he'll take on, my own husband will take on like way too much and then just suffer and absolutely be in pain. And then we're like nursing a sore back. I'm like, all right, now I'm just. Uh, I hate I hate the words I told you so, but um, yeah, I'm getting that heating pad. <laughs> and the the cast of characters he has his friends, Aaron, are funny as well, aren't they? Great comic comedians. They're so great. They're just great comedic actors. Yeah. They Those are. guys, like when we do we do our table reads where we first all read the script together on Mondays. And the first one that we had, it was like, oh, this, this, and you see it, you're like, this really works because those guys feel like they've been friends forever, and they've got such a rhythm together, and all of them just as an acting group are so strong and it, and really nice, genuine people. So you you buy into it right away, at least I did, and hope America did as well. <laughs> oh, I hope so too, and. I'll be rooting for you for sure, and your character really has to deal with the everyday getting Kevin to do work and uh, and figuring out what he's trying to figure out in his life and and how you've been raising the kids throughout, and he's been at work. Now he has to be part of it, and how you guys work together to be in the, under the same roof together at the same time. That's always a challenge for any couple, especially if they're used to be working different times or different places, so that's what will make it a lot of fun for people to tune in for sure. Yeah, yeah. And tonight's really fun because we start out, um, you get, you learn a little bit, you see a little bit more of Kendra and Chael's relationship, and you learn that he's saving up to buy her a ring, and then you also learn that, that um, the ring I have is our starter ring, and we always met, he always meant to get me a bigger ring but never did, and so now he feels like he's got to do it. And there's that thing, too, of like, well, how do you spend that much money without when both of you all are aware of the finances, how do you just disappear that amount of money and keep it a secret um, for something that that you might that she might want? Uh, so we go into that. It's all about our rings tonight, which is and it's a really fun episode. I think it's a great one. Um, so 8 p.m. tonight, everybody. 8 p.m. tonight. Tune in tonight. 8 p.m. Aaron, where's the best place you can find information on you? Where can we go? Uh, I am on Twitter at Hayes Lady and Instagram as well. And um, just that worldwide Internet has all the information. Uh, and then check out our CBS.com page for more information about the show. Aaron, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, hopefully you'll get your whole Christmas cleaned up, ready for the new year. And uh, best of luck in the rest of the season, okay? Thank you so much. Have a great day. Hey, Karen. All right, see you later. Bye-bye. You're listening to Total Celebrity Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, we're excited to welcome the program from Disney, Stuck in the Middle, Ronnie Hawk. Ronnie, thanks for calling, and how are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's exciting to have you on the show. It's kind of funny. My daughter's a huge Disney fan, and I told her I'm interviewing you. I said, I'm interviewing a star from Disney, because I interview a lot of celebrities in a variety of backgrounds. A lot of them, my daughter, who's 11, doesn't know. And I said, oh, I'm interviewing somebody from Stuck in the Middle. Really? Do you know who it is? And I go, and I mention, she says, I know who she is. Oh, how cool. So at least you made my daughter think I'm cool for once (laughs) today having you on the show. Oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. So tell us the story, Ronnie, of how you wanted to become an get involved in acting. Was it at an early age? 
Well, I was 12 years old, so yeah, I would say it's about early age. Um, I was big into dancing, but then I randomly just fell into modeling, and there was an actor workshop in Fort Lauderdale, and it was two acting coaches that came out to L.A., and so I went to the workshop, and it was an all-weekend workshop, and they were like, come out to L.A., we'll help you prepare to get an agent, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. So we found some, we set up some meetings with agents and managers, and I went out and I signed with Osbrink and Monster Talent, and from there I just started working. Wow, so it came that easy, I guess, to you, but you started later, I guess 12, because some people act a little younger than that. So was that difficult when you saw some of the places you started auditioning for, some of the experience some people had as a child actor that you didn't have as much? Definitely. The first year was a whole learning experience to me. Mm-hmm. And it was weird seeing kids that have been doing it since they were like three. And I was like, shoot, these people are really prepared <laughs> and they know what's up. <laughs> yeah, so it was difficult for the first year. But then I started getting the rhythm of it. Okay, so once you got the rhythm of it, what would you say was a break before Stock in the Middle? Like your first, like act, some of the acting experience you had before getting the big, get, big break was Stock in the Middle. Weirdly enough, I didn't really do, like, I haven't really booked anything other than stick, Stuck in the Middle. I've done short films, but that's about it. Oh, wow. So you had to learn, I guess, rejection early then, right? Or you didn't, or you didn't audition a lot of different things to that opportunity. No, I definitely, I definitely learned rejection real early. <laughs> yeah, I had to get used what, to rejection. What were they telling you, Ronnie? What are some of the things when you didn't get the gig or you maybe came close and just didn't get it? What were they saying? Well, they don't really, like, if you don't book a role, they just don't call. Like, oh, you, not, you just don't get a call. Yeah. Your agent doesn't tell you anything Sorry. like, well, why didn't you get the call? Your agent doesn't give you any feedback? Possibly I mean, of why you didn't get it? That, yeah. If I get really close to getting a role, then they will get feedback from, like, production. But for the most part, you normally don't get feedback. I couldn't. I, it kind of reminds me of just a regular job interview. You go and you never get the call or get a second interview. You know they didn't were interested. That's what it sounds like. I feel like a little girl waiting for like a boy to call, like next to the phone. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and so after this experience was stuck in the middle, did you start getting some other acting gigs as well, like working when you're not filming, stuck in the middle? Well, since I booked Stuck in the Middle, I instantly started working, and I just wrapped season one. So I decided to fly home and spend time with my family because the last time I got to see them was, like, Christmas. So I'm here for summer and just getting to hang out with my family. Oh, that's nice. Okay, so so tell us about your character in Stuck in the Middle. My character, her name is Rachel. She is the eldest of seven kids. She is a complete diva. She loves attention, loves pink, um, is addicted to boys, and slightly insane. But she loves her family more than does that remind you of you at all? I, I don't know what, how big a family you grew up in. Seven kids. I, ha- I have five of my own. I was the only child, and now Same. I have five kids of my own. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am one of five. Okay. So are so you the I'm oldest or youngest? So you're um, used to I that. You understand? Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely used to it. I'm the fourth kid of five. Oh, wow. When they were all little, let's go to your family for a second, then we'll go into your, your TV family. How crazy okay. was it? And you have to explain that to my wife, who is of three, but they were spread out. But right now I have an 11-year-old, the oldest that's the fan of, you, of yours, then my youngest is a oh. boy who's two. 
So we have two, uh, three, five, six, and then 11. So basically, how were the ages in your, in your family and how crazy was it in the house at times? Well, the thing is, my dad's first marriage, he adopted two kids called Ben and Katie, and they were already grown up by the time that I came along. So it's like I didn't live in the house with them because they already, like, were out and making their own world. But, um, I mean, we're all such a close family. Like, they're always over here, and we're always together. So, I mean, they were around. They just didn't live with me. So you weren't at that crazy point like the ages that I'm talking about in one house. No. More you're like your TV family, right? What are the age what are the ages no. on the T V family? Um, it's sixteen, fifteen, fourteen, thirteen, and then it goes like seven, six, or it goes eight, seven. No, wait, there's twins. So I think they're both like eight, and then there's Daphne, which is like seven or six. So that sounds like the kind of crazy home that I have. If when they were younger, if they were a real family, meaning together at those ages when they were younger, that would have been chaos. Definitely. <laughs> and so, how does how does your character deal with the big family, especially with all the younger kids as well in the family? Does she, she like it, or she sometimes wants privacy? She loves privacy, and she is the oldest, so she thinks that she deserves more attention and more, like, higher things than the other kids. But the other kids, like, bring her back to reality, and she definitely needs some of that. Interesting when you talk about the kids being back, put back to reality. That's an, an important part, and it, probably at times you're you're like saying, as your as your character says, why 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 are these little ones getting so much attention? I want my attention, and and my parents are just spending that time. So it's an interesting uh, character to say the least, and and really showing a true family of seven kids and how crazy it can be. Yeah, I give the writers props. They are amazing with this show. Have you gotten lots of mail and tweets and things of people that grow up in big families that can really relate to this family? Yes, it is the most amazing thing when all these sweet fans are like, I'm one of seven and I have a big family and I understand I'm able to relate to you. And that makes me so happy. It's, it's, it definitely seems like it would, for sure. You're like, and and you couldn't imagine that, right? Growing up that, in that kind of a situation where there's no privacy at all. <laughs> well, filming, um, I'm getting like a clue of that, because <laughs> I mean, there's so much of us on set. It's like you don't have any privacy, but it's like we love each other so much. We're just getting more and more used to each other. And that's why the success of the show, if you guys didn't get along as a cast, it wouldn't last, right? Definitely not, because I feel like with such a big cast, it can either go really good or really bad. Luckily for us, we all get along super well, and it's going amazing. How does, how, who's able to keep the whole family together, especially the ages of the different actors and actresses and, and, the, and the, the whole set in general, to keep things moving at times, especially when you're filming for so many hours at times? Well, a bunch of the kids have their moms come on set, so the moms will keep them in line, and they'll be like, look, because the kids will get tired and grumpy and things like that, and they'll be like, look, you can do it. And the older kids were always, like, there and supporting each other and be like, you can do it. It's fun. And it's just like we all really have to learn to be there for each other. I don't think it's one single person pushing us all, in, all along. So you get those t those tired modes, it sounds like, right? Ronnie, you get in those times like, oh, come on now, one more take. Explain that to people that might be wanting to be in this business and seeing what it's all about. It's not like the glamour, okay, one take and we're done. No, it isn't like that, is it? No. Um, well, a lot of the public eye just sees the glitz and glamour of acting, and it is so much fun. 
and working, it's lots of long hours, and it's like you can do a tape like 15, 16 times. I mean, you just got to learn to stay positive and really, like, love the people that you're working with. And that's that, that's important. And then, so explain to them it's work. Even though it's a lot of fun to be on the set and to be on a show, it's work like anything else. And you have to continue to study your craft and, and look at your character and how the character develops and work with the cast. Teamwork is important, isn't it? Yeah, teamwork is definitely huge, especially in a major cast that I'm in. And, like, on set, we're all together in, like, a building, and we have, like, the whole crew and cast has gotten sick multiple times. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.